Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I am blessed to be speaking with Reverend Dr. Frederick Haynes III, Freddie Haynes, as we like to call him, about how the coronavirus pandemic has further revealed the structural and racial inequalities embedded in our nation and our society. What has this virus laid bare for us now to address? So Dr. Freddie Haynes is senior pastor at Friendship West Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and a leader in the whole Proctor movement of black clergy from all over the country, speaking to what indeed God calls us to at a particular moment in time. And that moment is now. So, Freddie, I'm so glad you're with us today, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate uh, you, your witness, your prophetic courage and leadership, especially at a time like this. Uh, I've said behind your back, I say now to you, uh, whenever I am drained uh, during this journey, I say, okay, let me find out what Jim Wallace is up to. And there you are, right on the front lines opening the door uh, to a new era of what prophetic witness and ministry should be about. And so I thank you so much uh, for the fact that there is a left hand of God. Thank you. (laughs) Well, we've been alongside each other for a long time, which has been a great blessing to me. Let me start with sort of a question about that. Uh, So Freddie Haynes, how's your spirit? Well, and I, and I really appreciate you asking that. It, uh, this has been a roller coaster ride. I've shared with uh, a few that uh, this has been the busiest time of my life. Uh, it's also been a time where the metaphor for my experience took place on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday, of course, is normally the uh, largest, it's the highest, it's the holiest celebration we have during the year, and rightly so, as we uh, commemorate uh, the resurrection as an insurrection against oppression and injustice and the defeat of evil. Uh, and of course, in all of the pageantry, the preaching, the praise, uh, it's just a, a magnificent experience. Uh, but of course, this particular Easter Sunday was one where I preached into a camera. And one of my colleagues uh, shared on social media the next day what I was trying to find words to. And that's what I give you right now. He said that there's an emptiness uh, that we feel. He said, I preached to empty pews and that reflected the emptiness in my own spirit. And so there is a constant battle uh, with that emptiness because preaching Uh, as you well know, was originally designed to take place in a context of community and worship. And so it's not just the feedback uh, that we uh, look forward to, but it's it's seeing, you know, those persons we prayed for, those who are praying for us, those who are engaged on the front lines of service with us and and seeing the evidence of God moving uh, in the lives of people. And you see them you know, right there in front of you. That's something that uh, you you really cannot replicate with a with a camera. And so, uh, a, a few days ago, one of my members sent uh, via an email, 
a wonderful video of her two-year-old who was watching our streaming service and she was jumping up and down. I miss my church. I love my pastor. And she's one I would normally look forward to hugging after church. And so that emptiness is something that I honestly have to fight uh, in order to make sure that when you know, we are doing this work on the front lines. We are preparing for worship to deliver the message uh, that we do it from a place of fullness and not emptiness. Long answer to your short question, but uh, I think that is a part of what I'm working through during this season. I think that really expresses what a lot of pastors, preachers are feeling. And and as you know so well, uh, in the black churches, and you, you are exemplary in this, the sermon comes really out of interaction oh, with yeah. the congregation. Oh, no question. No question. So again, that's why speaking to a camera is so weird uh, to find the best word I can at this point, because there is a dialogical dimension uh, going on that I believe the spirit, you know, moves and, and inspires in real time that allows for revel revelation to break through. My late mentor, Emmanuel Scott Sr., used to say that sometimes when we're up preaching, the Holy Spirit runs down the aisle, you mm -hmm. know, saying, you know, news flash, breaking news. Uh, this is something fresh off heaven's press. And again, mm -hmm. that takes place in the context of community celebration and, and, and that feedback. Well, that two-year-old in her response to you was exemplifying what, preachers like you and I are always looking for. And and she expressed that back. And so how do we do that in this time? You were on a call uh, that was, I think, about 80 pastors in Florida talking about voter protection. And you said something that I'd like you to unpack. You said that churches now in this moment, churches need to, must innovate or will evaporate. They must innovate or will evaporate. That was, that struck me when I heard that. Um, elaborate on what you mean by that. I'm convinced that, you know, God did not create the coronavirus crisis, but God creatively uses crises in order to shift not only the world, but I dare say people of faith uh, and the church. And so no crisis should ever leave us the way it found us. Uh, there should be something going on within us as God works on us so that God through us can bring something out of the crisis that we did not have before. One of the things that I'm convinced about is that the crisis, to use the language of our good friend, Bishop William Barber, has exposed the fissures that allow viruses and illness to spread. And of course, we've seen sadly in the news what, you know, you and I and many of us have already known. And that is that, you know, this virus has exposed the fact that it's not discriminatory, but our healthcare system is, uh, our zip codes are, and environmental racism is. And so those are uh, already embedded in systems that allow for the exposing now of the disproportionate way that this virus is infecting 
and killing communities of color. And so given that, it's very important that we take a look at who we are as a church, who we are as a nation. And in that conversation, I'm speaking to pastors. And basically the message is that we this is a time of innovation. This is a time of taking a fresh look where we self-interrogate what we are doing, what we have not been doing. And in that self-interrogation, it should lead to a recommitment to the values of the gospel, the priorities of the gospel, and the very fact that you don't have a gospel of Luke uh, without an understanding that the theme is established by Jesus, you know, who says in chapter four, uh, this is what my mission is. And chapter four, he's anointed by the spirit to preach good news to the poor, set the captives free. It's a justice passage. And then Luke continues his narrative in the book of Acts. And Jesus says, the same spirit that anointed me in chapter four, I am now going to go back to the father and release that spirit. And that same spirit that anointed me to do justice work, that spirit is going to be released in your lives, in your ministry, in your church. And again, Jim, you have been calling for this for years, a revival in the church. And this revival in the church reunites in holy wedlock, Jesus with justice. And when we do that, I am convinced that will unleash in our churches, in our spirits, in our pastoral visions, a, an, an innovative spirit that will allow us to move with power and make a difference in the days to come. So, but the sad reality is if we do not innovate, if we are not creative during this time. Let's take a look at this crisis. Uh, it's interesting to me you mentioned Easter a few moments ago. Now, Easter was never a time to go back to normal. Easter is a time to make all things new. Yes. Um, you wrote in a column for your home newspaper, Dallas Morning News, you wrote that racism and economic bias infect our medical systems, adding insult and inequality to injury. Now, you wrote that in the middle of COVID-19. So what are you seeing that's being revealed in Dallas uh, that is indeed uh, exposing what was already true and still is. It could be. And here I am in Texas and the governor of this state is rushing to open up the economy, taking his cues from uh, the White House while ignoring science. And it could be that there is a rush to getting back to what's normal as opposed to trying to deliberately interrogate what has been so that we can be liberated into what should be. And so one of the things that, you know, has definitely been exposed during this crisis uh, is the fact that there is a racism in our healthcare system. And that healthcare system is a reflection of this nation. And so 
when we have seen the disproportionate way that uh, African-Americans are dying, I maintain that we are being tested least while dying most. And that has everything to do with medical apartheid uh, because medical apartheid is revealed in, I mean, uh, there have been some uh, studies recently that talked about the different way that doctors view patients of color, especially black patients, believing their pain threshold is much greater. That's a very dangerous way to approach uh, to approach uh, uh, someone who comes for, to you for help and healing, and you've taken a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. But but again, that is a result of a racism that is embedded in this country that you and many others have consistently tried to expose and lift up. That's not just about how someone treats you individually in a mean fashion, but it has to do with a system. Uh, it has to do with structures. And so that is played out, of course, in medical apartheid, environmental racism. Uh, one of the things that is really heartbreaking, Jim, is that you know, in St. John's Parish there in Louisiana, which is also known as Cancer Alley. Uh, it's not New York. And so it's not making uh, front page news. Uh, but the sad reality is there are many deaths taking place there. That community of color that's already exposed to uh, the, the air there that is polluted mm -hmm. uh, with so many things from the oil refineries, not to mention uh, incinerators and landfills, all of that, which is why it's called Cancer Alley. And right here in Dallas, where I am, uh, I'm on the side of town where we have 29 landfills, where we have incinerators that they do not have on the other side of town. And so that is why cases of asthma are so prevalent on this side of town. And, and so when we look at the disproportionate way that black people are dying from this disease, from underlying conditions, I suggest it's because of the pre-existing social conditions that have created the underlying conditions that are the result of the infection and toxin of racism that continues to infect this country. So, so given that, again, right here in Dallas, and, and, and that article that you referenced, the op-ed, uh, was a response to uh, a mass critical care proposal by doctors here in Dallas who were saying that in case we run out of resources and we have more patients than resources. This will be the non-discriminatory way that we receive patients. And can you share that with your community? And so I said, I can't do that in good conscience until you hear from me the social conditions that have created the biological factors that are going to preclude us from getting treatment should this mass critical care come about. So the bottom line is, you know, race res remains uh, the unresolved issue in this country, racism, the original sin that causes us to be the disunited states of America and to come out of this crisis in a way that is healthy, where this nation is better. We have to be honest. We have to take we have to follow the leadership of the Jim Wallace's, the William Barber's, the Tracy Blackman's of our time and hear the gospel that you are proclaiming so that we can make America truly one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all and actually mean it in our systems and structures.
So you're describing how racism and poverty are preconditions for getting this disease. The numbers stun us every day. Now the number of cases and the number of deaths, tens of thousands. But the numbers in terms of African-Americans contracting this disease uh, is three to one more than white people, three to one. And dying of the disease is six to one. There's numbers, three to one. Contracting six to one in dying because it's so deeply related to pollution, asthma, lack of access to medical care. Medical apartheid is a powerful, powerful term. Uh, lack of steady income, lack of lack of reliable, secure, healthy food. There's all kinds of, but racism and poverty become preconditions themselves right. for this virus. Right, right. And so that's why we cannot in good conscience rush to open opening the country back up because we still have yet to honestly look at and respond to why this, you know, diabolical disproportionality exists, six to one, three to one. I mean, those are numbers that I don't think anyone with a conscience wants to run away from unless we engage in, you know, behavior shaming and blaming in order to absolve ourselves of dealing with the real issues. And we've heard it uh, from the Surgeon General. We've heard it from uh, the vice president as they, you know, as, as, as the conversation shifts now into, well, stop drinking, stop doing tobacco, stop doing things of that nature. And I guess the, the irony of it is, is that there is an ignoring of the structural realities that create the options that confine and define choices. And worse than that, you know, there is an ignoring of the structural realities that have created the communities that lack opportunity. I read a beautiful piece by Charles Blow where he talked about the very notion of social distancing is a privilege. Uh, The fact that I can sit here uh, in my house, even though I'm on a certain side of town, but but the fact that I can sit in my house as a pastor of a church affords me a privilege that some of my members don't have who have to go to work every single day in situations that are dangerous. Uh, they are not always afforded the best protection, but they have to make a choice between going to work and not being able to pay bills and then getting to work, maybe getting exposed to this virus contracting the virus and then they don't have paid leave uh paid medical leave and so so again these are all unjust uh issues that are a part of a structure that has to be totally rebuilt if we are going to come out of this in a healthy fashion so while medical workers healthcare workers are on the front lines and and we've finally seen that Uh, what you're describing as essential workers, people who take public transit to every day serve and supply our food and our needs to bring us and make for us what we need. Those essential service workers are overwhelming, disproportionately people of color. No question. And, 
and it's and it's really ironic. And and Jim, you've been on the front lines fighting for a living wage for so long, and now we are referring to them as essential workers, right. and yet mm-hmm. we don't pay them as if they are essential. We pay them as if they are non-essential. We devalue the work that they do. But this crisis has really revealed that they are the engine that keeps the economy, that keeps this nation going. And without them, the nation falls apart. They are the foundation, as it were. One of the, th- uh, one, one of the things that, that breaks my heart is that we have not put enough spotlight on those workers in hospitals who are not nurses, they are not doctors, mm-hmm. but they are cleaning the hospitals. They are keeping the beds clean. They're changing the bedpans. And many of them cannot afford to stay in the hospital if they get sick because they're essential to keeping the hospital sanitized and disinfected and clean. And yet they're not paid a living wage. And and again, they're essential, but they're devalued. And so those persons in many instances, are persons of color. Uh, They are living, they're working hard every day, uh, but they also find themselves at the poverty line. And again, if we have what Dr. King called a revolution of values to come out of this, that revolution of values will then place value on those who we have shown no value to, and yet they are essential workers. So you said something to... Adele Banks, who's a wonderful African-American woman journalist for a religious news service. And here's what you said really struck me. There are those of us who have been fighting for that, for justice for so long. There are those of us who have been fighting for that. And now we are upgrading our fight because we are seeing that this country has proven that it does not have a desire to protect us. This country has proven that it does not have a desire to protect us. That struck me very deeply. Like, what does your, what your daughter must feel that in the two-year-old kid when she gets older, that we're not, the desire isn't to protect us. It's to protect others. Right. Instead of us. And I, and I cannot tell you how many heartbreaking conversations I've had uh, since the crisis Uh, started, the coronavirus crisis started, where there were those in my community who were just saying, you know, they've proven that they don't care. And so we we had better come up with some ideas. We'd better come up with resources. We'd better come up with our own systems, uh, because there's no way that everything that Dr. King and so many fought for uh, will ever come to pass, because this nation is just inherently uh, sick. Uh, I can share with you people that both of us know, love and respect, who as recently as last night uh, said that maybe Jimmy Baldwin was correct, that we have integrated into a burning house and the house is just going to continue to burn because no one is serious about putting the fire out uh, because they, have, they haven't dealt with those flammable uh, ideas and those flammable that that flammable wiring uh, that's going to continue uh, to allow the fire and the inferno uh, to expand. So there is that prophetic lament 
uh, that is going on in so many circles uh, because so many feel that this basically is a country that is concerned about those who are up and in, uh, those who are privileged, uh, those who have resources, and that they are going to always be protected even at the expense of others. And we've seen that play out for not just 400 years, but this crisis, this coronavirus crisis seems to have exposed it uh, in a fresh way. It's another revelation of America's original sin. So this crisis, this pandemic, let me be blunt, this pandemic is now being politicized and made partisan, which is unbelievable and unforgivable at the same time. And the racial geography of this pandemic is now being made clear. And so it seems to me that this notion of the truth, (laughs) Jesus said, you'll know the truth, the truth will make you free. You can say now in the pandemic, uh, and the untruths, untruths will make you and your loved ones and your neighbors sick and die. And how do we be those who speak the truth and who talk about another biblical uh, conviction, unity, and third, solidarity with with those who are vulnerable? These biblical principles are crucial for the reopening, if you will. Truth, unity, and solidarity, the reopening of a society depends on those biblical truths. No question, no question. And and all of those biblical truths that you so insightfully are lifting up as contingencies for a successful reopening are driven by love and justice. And of course, uh, we have friends, Michael Dyson, uh, Cornell West, who speak of uh, justice as what love looks like when it speaks in public and and just thinking of that and 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 the principles that you're laying out by way of unity and and truth all of those must overrule and overturn and override that partisanship that sinfully as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. starting mm-hmm. to preside over you know how we are navigating you know towards a reopening that is premature in too many instances and a premature reopening for me mitigates against everything that you so wonderfully have outlined the the i mean the unity it's we we haven't had a chance to build that uh sadly because that has not been you know in the uh unfolding of this crisis that has not been a priority when you know it could have been a priority uh this nation has a history of at least attempting to come together when it is under attack. And this was a wonderful opportunity for those in leadership uh, at the federal level to say, this is our time to come together. And instead uh, that had been squandered uh, because again, there was the politicizing of it. uh, There was the partisanship that became a part of it. And it negated the opportunity for unity. Why? Because the truth had already been sacrificed in order for one's political agenda to continue. And so that's the dangerous thing there. And that is we have so much 
We have so many people in positions of power who have an allergic reaction to the truth. And as long as they have an allergic reaction to the truth, it's going to mitigate against any notion of unity that is really waiting on us to grab it as we move forward. Because whatever else I'm discovering, I love to remix Martin Luther King Jr. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Well, this virus is teaching us that an infection anywhere is a threat to good health everywhere. So even with the disproportionality of the stats, six to one death, three to one infection rate, even with that, the fact that those six and three can get infected, that means that that one can also be exposed to that infection. So we have an opportunity here to come together in unity. But as long as we ignore the truth, uh, I think we're going to sabotage that that reality. It's a powerful word. Infection anywhere is a threat to infection everywhere, to paraphrase Dr. King. You have sometimes brought me to my feet when you have preached another line from Dr. King about the urgency of now. Yeah. So apply that to this, what you just said about how infections anywhere infect our society everywhere. And how could this now, this urgency now, teach us that from Dr. King? I received this just the other day. We are doing a piece here in Dallas County uh, because in our county jails, we have persons who uh, go into that filthy environment and contract the virus and then come back out in the community. And so one of our, you know, medical experts said that one person infected has the potential to infect 41 persons. And so when you mm-hmm. go into uh, the county jail and then come out and you, and you can go in as a worker there, you can go in as someone who is arrested for a petty drug offense and then somehow you get released or the worker goes home. Well, they're coming back to a community and a family and what they bring from that filthy, you know, setting that, you know, becomes an incubator for the spreading of the disease. Again, it goes into the community. So when we're talking about, you know, attacking that curve, it's impossible to attack the curve until you deal with those who are most vulnerable in society, who at the same time are not being tested. And so for me, the application of Dr. King's fierce urgency of now becomes so vital uh, at this point because of how unpredictable this virus is, because of the fact that the virus itself does not discriminate. And so when someone leaves that county jail, leaves that nursing home, leaves that area where where persons are most vulnerable, they are going to inevitably come in contact with, you know, only God knows who. That means all of us are vulnerable when we start to think of it like that. There, that there are those who are especially vulnerable, but this virus has exposed the fact that 
all of us are vulnerable if we don't value each and every one of us. And so the fierce urgency of now speaks to the fact that now is the time, as Dr. King went on to say, for us to rise up and fight for true justice. Now is the time for us to use this crisis to envision what America should look like. Now is the time for us to use this crisis to tear down structures of injustice and replace them with structures characterized by justice. Now is the time to push for policies that that bless those who are the least of these, because really, if we're not careful, we will hear Jesus say in the judgment, I was hungry, because one of the things, Zan Holmes, our good friend, points this out when he says that when in that Matthew passage, chapter 25, when Jesus judges the nation, it's 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 not individuals, it's nations. And Zan goes on to say that means he's judging the policies of those nations as he separates the sheep from the goats and says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, etc. So now is the time. To, to, to raise our prophetic voices and declare that Jesus may be saying, I was thirsty and you contaminated the water. So now was the time to make sure that all persons have clean water. I found it parenthetically, painfully ironic that there were protesters there in Michigan who were protesting and asking for the opening of uh, the economy, but they did not protest when there was the infection of the water or the contamination of the water in Flint. They're not protesting about the disproportionality of black lives dying right there in Michigan or and especially in Detroit. So now is the time for us to tear down those structures of injustice and replace them with structures of justice because again, and we've said it already, how we come out of this crisis is not going to be the same, but we have every every power to determine what we look like when we come out of this crisis. And my concern is that we don't use this power to come out of this crisis, making and shaping America into what it should be, because, because if we don't, and this is what uh, I believe Dr. King was warning us about, we will find this nation moving toward the junk heap of history as one of those great empires that used to be, but it mismanaged a crisis and it never became all that it should have become. My brother, you are laying out here for us how the COVID now could prompt a new fierce urgency. Yeah. As Dr. King was laying out how this COVID now would cause a new fierce urgency that he certainly would have applied to this moment were he here. No question. No question. And, and that's why, again, in putting all of what Dr. King said in that context, now is the time, uh, he said, the fierce urgency of now, while calling for a revolution of values, a revolution of values, values human life. And it runs contrary to what the lieutenant governor of Texas said when he talked about the economy being more important than living and sacrificing lives in order to get the economy back going. And so 
again, let's go back to Dr. King in that same message. He talks about how the means by which we live come to our distance and we confuse them with the ends for which we live. And so, so now is the time in that fierce urgency to have that sense of, of, of valuing human life to the point where we recognize you cannot put a price tag on human life. And so I plead with uh, all of our citizens, I plead with those who have the ears of those persons in power who are talking about there's some things more important than living. That's a direct quote from the Lieutenant Governor of Texas to, to, to get him to understand the fierce urgency of now and recognize that Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. He did not say it. He did not say, I've come that you may have a healthy economy or a wealthy economy. He said, I've come that you may have life. And so, again, all of that for me is in that fierce urgency of right now. This crisis is an opportunity for us to rise up, to snatch it and to reimagine what this country should look like, reimagine what our community should look like. And again, there are those who are taking advantage of this crisis in a partisan fashion to enrich those who are already rich. And we cannot miss, and I think this falls in line with what Dr. King said, what Jesus said when he said, sometimes uh, the sons and daughters of darkness are more wise than those sons and daughters of light, because the sons and daughters of darkness in this instance are taking advantage of the fierce urgency of now. And we must rise up, reimagine, engage in a revolution of values because this is a season of fierce urgency of now. So is there an opportunity here? And what I mean is we see this lack of federal leadership, presidential leadership. We see some efforts by some governors and mayors to do things differently. But is there the civil society, not the federal government, the civil society right. in many ways is starting to work on these things, not systemically or perfectly, but things are happening out there in what's called the civil society, including the faith community, where, where we could begin to respond and we could begin to show a different way, even if the federal government isn't and showing us, in fact, the wrong way forward. Is there an opportunity here? Could could white churches learn what black churches have known for so long, which drew, drew me way back when I was a kid and got kicked out of a white church, the marrying of biblical theology with justice as a way of life, as, a, as an integral gospel? Could some of the white churches learn that? Could the, the civil society take leadership from the grassroots uh, and respond differently than your lieutenant governor. In fact, a good economy is when human lives are flourishing. <laughs> so yeah. how, how could there, could there be an opportunity when there's a lack of leadership on a federal level for there to be a new kind of leadership in civil society uh, sparked indeed in part by the faith community? Is there a chance here? To turn I, this I think around. you are on point on so many levels. I'll illustrate it with something that I just got off a uh, call, a conference call with our county judge and faith leaders, because 
the governor of this state is determined to open up the economy and he issued an executive order uh, pertaining to churches. And as soon as we got on this call, my first statement was that, you know, this is irresponsible and I refuse to listen to a governor over the science. Uh, the governor is not going to dictate, you know, how we respond uh, to this crisis uh, because the governor has shown that he is getting his cues from the White House and has decided to be reckless and irresponsible. And Jim, when I tell you, everyone on that call, and this was a uh, call, an interfaith uh, group of leaders and all on the call uh, came together to say, uh, number one, uh, that we are not going to follow the direction of the governor. And so even though he's opening up uh, the churches, uh, we are sending him a joint letter, speaking of civil society, faith communities coming together and providing leadership uh, that is not being provided at the top. And we have basically said we are not going to open our churches and we are going to listen to the science because as shepherds, we are not just concerned with feeding the flock on Sunday. A part of our job description is to fight the wolves during the week. And so we are feeding the sheep through technology and we're going to fight the wolves who want to expose the sheep prematurely for their own economic and political advantage. And so uh, that, again, for me, was so refreshing to see leadership, faith leadership right here in what used to be called the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt in the same town where Robert Jeffries is. There are faith leaders who are saying, we are not going to bow to Baal. We are not going to open up our churches and our members to this virus that can do further damage. And I think that is an illustration of how civil leadership, faith leadership can take a stand. And where there is a vacuum of leadership at the top, we basically fill that vacuum. And so I'm really excited uh, because that is one of those areas. Uh, another area is taking a good look at the fact that too many of our nursing homes and too many of our jails and prisons are filthy already. Uh, they are inhumane already. We call ourselves a great nation. And yet many of our citizens who have been incarcerated, who have been wrongly convicted, who are in these jail cells, are living in conditions that are less than third world countries uh, and their own systems of incarceration. So uh, I think this is an awesome opportunity. That's how God works. God just plants seeds of opportunity in the dirt of crises that can produce the fruit of a brand new society if we handle it and fertilize it right. And so I, I, I love that concept. And again, I'm just really proud. I cannot tell you how proud I am of our faith leadership. One of our faith leaders talked about the fact that uh, we have to have the back of our Islamic brothers and sisters because we're entering into the season of Ramadan. And of course, to open up the uh, churches, the faith communities to go back to their places 
and we're missing each other. Uh, and our Islamic brothers and sisters may find themselves uh, going uh, to mosque uh, in order to commemorate and celebrate this high and holy season. And, you know, there's a concern that this is a conspiracy to provide a political scapegoat to the furthering of this pandemic. And so we had that conversation on a faith call right here in Dallas that again made me so proud because it's an example of how we can rise up and offer prophetic leadership and that prophetic leadership can stand up in the absence of the appropriate moral leadership that we are missing at the federal level. Isn't that what we mean by hope <laughs> in the faith community? You know, faith is the substance, oh, yeah. as Hebrews, of things hoped for, yeah. the evidence of things not seen. This crisis could be also a moment of opportunity if we show the kind of leadership that we are not seeing at the national level. But if faith communities and interfaith and people with no faith at all but want to respond to to a moral imperative, if we can provide that kind of leadership, that's what we mean by hope, isn't it, in the faith community? Oh, no doubt about it. And and the irony of it is that hope works best in hellish circumstances. Hope is not something that uh, we uh, exhibit uh, whenever the skies are sunny and everything is wonderful uh, in our world as we're at the mountain peak of achievement. No, hope is what works in the midst of the mess of the world in which we find ourselves in. And so so I think that hope that is uh, not only what fueling us, but then uh, there is that moral compass that we provide that again is lacking on so many levels, but especially at the federal level. Uh, and in my state, unfortunately, uh, from the governor's office, uh, there is an absence of leadership because, again, there is a determination to be more partisan and political than it, than it is to be principled. And so when you are principled, you operate energized by hope and you operate with a moral compass providing you direction. So we're fueled by hope. But then our compass, our GPS, to use 21st century language, is 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 that 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 morality uh, that says all of God's children, all of creation, all of humanity is valued and should be treated as so. And therefore, we should structure life to value all and not just a few. Well, I love finishing this blessed conversation with you, brother, on that theme of hope. In a COVID crisis, where is the hope going to come from? And you have just spoken to that. Could you offer, my friend, a prayer for that kind of hope in the midst of this crisis uh, that the faith community could, could in fact be known for, that we are the ones who offered and provided hope by telling the truth, by showing unity, and by expressing our solidarity with those who are most vulnerable. Could yeah. you offer a prayer for that kind of hope? I, I, We need to pray for that kind of hope in, in a time yeah. like this. I'd be glad to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Gracious and loving God, the God who has granted us through the faith that the dark past has taught us this hope 
that the present has brought us. We thank you for seeds of hope that work best in the dirt of a crisis. We thank you and we praise you as we gratefully recall your healing power. We also remember with hope those whose bodies are infected with COVID-19 with the hope that you will come through as only you can. We praise you as the God of resurrection and life while we pray in that resurrection hope for you to comfort those who have a grief-sized hole in their heart. We thank you for your protection as our refuge and strength while we pray in hope for you to guard and guide those courageous medical warriors who are on the front lines of this war against this invisible yet invincible enemy. We, we thank you, O oh God, for your prioritized compassion for the marginalized, and yet we plead with you in hope to grant them safety, security, provision, and yes, your peace. Oh God, may our community, state, nation, and world through public policy and personal philanthropy bless and benefit those who are impoverished with their backs against the wall. We, we worship you as the God of justice and, and thank you for, for giving us a hope and a faith. And we ask you to touch, heal, and protect communities of color disproportionately and fatally hurt by infected systems of racism that have been exposed by this crisis. God, forgive us for placing economic wealth over personal health. Forgive us for allowing greed to govern us. Fill us now with your love so that we will creatively use this crisis to build a more just, humane, and loving world. Give us the faith to hold your hand through the darkness of this crisis, trusting you for strength, healing, and peace while looking forward to better days and believing in hope that the best is yet to come. Thank you. The words of the prophet Jeremiah still ring true that you, O oh God, have given us plans. As a matter of fact, you have plans for us, plans for a future, plans for good, and yes, plans for a hope. We ask it all in the name of our Lord and liberator, we pray. Amen. The Reverend Dr. Freddie Haynes is the nation's revival preacher, and he's just laid out for us what a revival, even a revival, might look like in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis. Thank you for joining us, Freddie. Thank you, and thank you for the great work you continue to do. I cannot tell you how much you inspire me, and God uses you uh, to keep so many of us going in this fight because you are always on the front lines as a true prophet of the Most High God. Thank you so much, Jim Wallace. To hear more from Freddie, follow him on Twitter at FHUnscripted. That's F-H Unscripted. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. If you enjoy this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family and maybe even your enemies, as Jesus calls us to love them too. And what better way to love someone than to share a podcast that can open eyes. We are available on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. After you listen, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace.
is Jim Wallace with the Soul of the Nation. God bless you.